Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome back to The Daily Evolver. Today, we're going to take a new angle on an issue that we deal with a lot here on The Daily Evolver. And that is the issue of the intensification of political polarization in America and and in other parts of the world too, but in America particularly. In fact, I saw this morning where the students in Colorado Springs just did, uh, high school students just did a walkout in support of the Second Amendment. So, you know, the beat goes on. I mean, we just, the, the polarization, the, as Whitman said, out of the darkness or out of the dimness, opposite equals advance. And that's, you know, one of the ways we see it as evolutionaries. And, and I generally bring two insights to polarization that I just want to, you know, uh, put, put on the table. One is that from an evolutionary perspective, we don't necessarily see polarization as an altogether bad thing. It's unpleasant for sure and painful and can go bad for sure. But it's a stage on the path of evolution, which moves forward by the process of differentiating and integrating. So yeah, polarization is that differentiation where in the case of politics, we you know, bring out our dueling worldviews particularly conservative traditionalism and progressive postmodernism. And we fight and we clarify our differences and we parry and we, you know, we are in the arena with each other. And even when we go to extremes, you know, that actually just increases the space that these worldviews ultimately have to offer as we have a new, bigger playing field from which to go to the good part, which is the integration, which is when we, you know, get tired of the polarization and say, wait, we want this from here and this from here and this from here and this from here. We get a new integration and we breathe into a whole new stage of development. And that's what we're after here. And I also make the point that um, we're living in a world that is sufficiently complex And there are enough stages of development, if you will, online competing at the same time that we can be doing polarizing and integrating at the same time. It doesn't have to be this big war, uh, this big explosion, but we can be working it at the same time. And that's essentially what we do at the Daily Evolver. Uh, You know, we're looking for that integration. And politically, we're looking for the integration of worldviews, you know, in terms of consciousness in the first person, we pay attention a lot to the culture and how we relate to people who are our worldview competitors, you know, the ones who we see as our enemies and pioneer what that integration might be in that second person. But I don't you naturally go to third person a lot, which is, you know, dealing with the actual systems and the rules and the institutions and the players. And that's why I always extra appreciate when I run into somebody who is working in the third person in, in terms of an integration. And it is in that spirit that I welcome my guest today, my longtime friend, Tom Curran, who has just founded a new nonprofit called Change the Rules. And um, welcome, Tom Curran. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And hello, everybody. Good to have you. Uh, I think 
the best way to kick things off today and really, um, you know, get what it is you're going for in this changetherules.org uh, is to play a short introduction that you have on your brand new website. And um, yeah, so I, I think that this, um, I think this video really lays out beautifully the problem that you're trying to solve. And, and I have to say that it really made me think deeper about this problem. And, and, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's obvious to those of us who are subject to the polarized political system that it seems broken and, you know, way out of whack. But your point is that for the people who are actually the players, and their customers, the candidates, the lobbyists, the money people, it's working great. And so right. <laughs> that's the message of this, um, of this video. And it's three minutes. Uh, for those of you who are listening as a podcast, no worries. It's all narration, so you'll get the full message. And by the way, there are several uh, really cool videos on the Change the Rules site. So check them out there. Changetherules.org. Change the rules, yes.org. And here it is, about three minutes. Politics is not something enshrined in the Constitution. The Constitution makes no mention of political parties, primary elections, ballot access procedures, or the countless other rules that drive today's politics. The primary purpose of politics as a business, as it currently functions, is the re-election of incumbents and the protection of the two national parties. As broken as this business appears in terms of serving the broader public interest, it is actually thriving based upon its own standards for success. For starters, the overwhelming majority of incumbents are re-elected, not punished in any way for the collective inability to solve problems. This makes sense when you see how this business limits genuine competition. Their trick is to compete based upon ideology, the allocation of blame, and the requirement to be seen merely as the least bad candidate. While the RNC and DNC are undergoing deep ideological struggles, they continue to effectively block any outside competition. Money provides perhaps the most visible measurement of success. Money continues to pour into this business in the form of campaign financing, lobbying dollars, and well-paying jobs for an army of partisan consultants, think tanks, media outlets, and support functions. Not to mention lucrative career options for elected officials and staff when they leave public service. The disconnect between business success and public service makes sense when you look at the rules that have evolved over the last 40 years. These rules can be changed. Our overall goal should be rules and structures that elect officials who are actually disposed to solving our complex national problems. And conversely, 
throwing out incumbents who do not solve these problems. As bad as things seem now, there is hope. There is already a set of reforms that are operating largely under the radar that are showing that the system can be changed. It is not simple, nor easy. The mission at Change the Rules is to manage this difficulty on your behalf. Because changing the rules changes everything. Right on, man. Yeah. Well, well said. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, Todd, to start here, um, well, first of all, I've always known you as a high-class business consultant. So, you know, flying around and straighten everybody out. Uh, uh, and now you're turning your attention to straightening the whole political system out. And I, I'm glad, but how, how did you get here? What do you, what's, what's, what's turning you on about this? Yeah. Uh, well, for decades, I've been paid to do strategy work and organizational change work in complex organizations. So that's always been my orientation. And, uh, and I've always felt the, uh, structure of the two party system was kind of rigged. Um, and uh, I tended to focus really more myopically on the role of money in politics, which is part of it, but it's much beyond that. Uh, so what really kicked this off for me is last September, Harvard Business School published a study by Michael Porter and Catherine Gill. And Michael Porter is a very well-known uh, business strategist. And um, it laid out the problem uh, so clearly, essentially the problem was structural. Uh, and that solutions were um, actually being enacted, but there was no one silver bullet. It was a portfolio of things. So um, I thought that was a powerful message and I got very excited about it. And it's a 60 page white paper. And I started talking to my friends and sending it to them. And you know they never read it. They didn't read the 10 page executive summary, much less the 20 pages. Of <laughs> so did they have a one paragraph abstract? They didn't have the one paragraph abstract. Uh, so, so, uh, so that went on for about six weeks. And then at Thanksgiving dinner, I have a 29-year-old son, and he and some of his Gen X buddies were around the table. And uh, we were talking about politics, and they were, you know, the typical, you know, resignation. There's nothing you can do about it. Roll of money in politics. And I realized I had so much to say, having just totally absorbed this Harvard study and joined all the organizations that they mentioned. It was on all of their mailing lists and getting this stuff. So I realized that um, I wanted to take accountability for solving uh, our political system, that I didn't create it. But now that I think there's a clear pathway to solve it, uh, I, I took on accountability for solving. It. So uh, that was Thanksgiving. And over the last four months, uh, I created a nonprofit, Change the Rules, and um, and uh, a website that really is very much structured on the Harvard work, but uh, tries to make it in a very uh, simplified but not simplistic way and make it accessible to people. The other thing the organization does is um, um, once I've sold the problem, that the problem is structural, not a better breed of candidates or something like that. That uh, say it's it's many things. It's not going to happen in one election cycle. It's kind of wonky, uh, but we'll manage that complexity. So you can 
now that you know about, let's say, these six organizations, you can join any of them individually. Or if you want to contribute or be an activist, uh, we can, I can make that simple for you. So in terms of donations, if you want to donate to structural reform, you can donate to changerules.org and we'll manage the portfolio like an investment portfolio. You know, using expert knowledge on one of the initiatives, we'll take 5% for operating expenses. But So I'm trying to make it um, uh, accessible for the average person that, you know, is not going to dive into the details, but just wants their government to work. Okay, so you, <clears throat> you're basically aggregating this money, investing it in these six organizations that, are, that already exist are already doing good work, have been identified by Michael Porter in the Harvard paper, uh, and, um, and they go, they, they have these levers in, in I think, really, um, in, in, you know, powerful leverage points exactly. in the system. And so why don't we walk through these six, uh, these, these six sort of categories of work that you're doing? Great. Um, so it might be helpful to put up a slide. Okay. Uh, and if you're listening on a podcast, uh, you can see this graphic at changetherules.org. Uh, and we'll also walk through it now so that uh, you'll know where we are. So uh, a good metaphor to think about it is uh, the current rules have evolved and this isn't just, you know, since 2016, this is over the last 40 years, to create a system that really boxes all the participants in, in to certain behaviors. And, they're, uh, and, and what's, what's inside box now, as you mentioned, is success for politicians uh, and success uh, for the players in the system, but that success is not related to um, the national interest. There's a video on my website, a study at Princeton that shows there's no correlation, no correlation between the popularity of an initiative and whether it gets enacted. So people say, well, you know, gun control, you know, is, 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 uh, you know, favored by 80%, you know, so they're scratching their heads. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, first 40% of the electorate doesn't vote. And another 40% only votes in the general election among the least bad candidates. So who the people that matter, the customers that matter in this business are uh, first the, um, the big money and the special interests, which since you know, Citizens United have kind of collapsed. And then the, uh, the, the partisan uh, primary voters, the, that 20%, sometimes it's as low as 5%, that actually determine who's going to be on the ballot. And the average voter just gets to uh, pick the least bad choice. All right. So this is a structural problem where we're actually putting the political system largely in the hands of the most polarized voters. Exactly. The most, the most motivated ideological voters are the ones that go in and choose the primary candidate that then runs against the other primary candidate in the general. And so it's really stacked against people who are actual problem solvers and operating in some sort of a reasonable middle. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you talked about um, a polarity. So, uh, you know, uh, democracy is, uh, is meth messy. If you've ever, you know, been on a co-op board or, you know, anything, you know that it involves debate and nuance and compromise and everything else. And there's a 
healthy dialectic between left of center, right of center, you know, uh, but that's not the Republican and Democratic, the DNC and RNC <clears throat> would seem to be competing, but they're actually colluding around things that keeps the system the way it is. And what they're competing on is ideology, okay? It's essentially around ideology. And because if you compete on ideology, you don't have to actually focus on real solutions, you know? So these false things like big government, small government, you know, no regulation, over-regulation, those are really uh, false polarities, but they, they uh, work on um, uh, ideological stances. So that fires up a group of people that uh, you know, are very active and they act as the gatekeepers in the primary elections. And um, the two parties are so strong <clears throat> that 75% um, of our representatives, state and federal, are elected without ever having to communicate outside of their party structure. Okay, but let's pause there. 75% of candidates are elected without ever having to communicate outside of their party. Yeah, so to bring that home, <clears throat> if you're a Parkland student activist and you decide to register to vote, and millennials are now registering 50% independence, and there was something that came out last week that the uh, pre in Colorado, the 60,000 70 year olds that have pre registered. 60% are registering unaffiliated, 20% Republican, 20% Democratic. So if you're in Florida, which is typical, 85% of the uh, representatives are decided in the primary elections. And because of a closed primary system, you can't vote in the Republican or the Democratic party unless you're registered in those parties. So if you're registered as an independent, you're out, you have no say. So this is why we say one of the things that boxes in the current system is limits on competition, both third parties and a closed competition within the two major parties. All right, so that's why your first um, initiative is, is around open primaries. Right. And, and, and let me just say this, Tom, that one of the things, you explained this to me yesterday, we took, we took a walk by the Boulder Creek, you explained all this. And what I loved about it is that these are, uh, like I said, they're leverage points. It feels like, you know, really high leverage situations where you're going in and making changes where there's already some traction. Right. There's already some success. This is not ideological. It's not pie in the sky. And it feels like it would really make a big difference. So the first one you're going after is open primaries. So tell us about that. So <clears throat> things vary across uh, each state and each uh, municipality. Um, and uh, currently now there may be uh, 10 or 12 states that have purely open primaries and 10 or 12 states that have purely closed primaries. And then there's a mix. So a purely closed primary is you need to be registered as a Republican or Democrat to, to, to vote in that uh, primary. And a purely open primary <clears throat> is one in which any registered voter can participate. Um, and you know, I, ideally, uh, you could have an election in which uh, uh, in the primaries, members across both parties can, um, can vote. So for example, in a big landmark thing that's coming up in June in Maine, uh, 
there was a ballot initiative due to open primaries and grassroots efforts that mandated open primaries. And so they are uh, the current governor as a term limit. And, uh, and so there are uh, five Republican candidates and nine Republican, uh, can, five, nine Democrats, five Republicans. And there's gonna be one initial election where everybody can vote and they're gonna do rank, they're gonna do rank voting, which I'll get to in a minute but it's a common pool that represents, you know, a spectrum of candidates. So uh, that's, that's an example of, a, of an open uh, primary uh, process. In Colorado, uh, we had a successful ballot initiative uh, two years ago. And so Colorado is moving to open primaries. The legislature pushed back on it and uh, they tried to say, well, you don't need to be registered, but you have to declare, you know, that you're leaning Republican and, you know, so then there was a second wave of activist effort that you know really kept it open, but that but that's what a that's what an open prime primary is. I and, and, say, we don't, and we don't want to just limit it to people who say I'm a Republican or Democrat because right. first of all, many and even the majority of new voters are just sick of the parties. That's right. People are leaving the, the, so they, the national parties in droves, not just Republicans but Democrats, and and there's. You know, if the Colorado 17-year-olds are any indication, 60% of the people coming in are unaffiliated. Right. They, so they're they're just basically cut out of the system without, you know, without yeah. open primaries. So that seems like a, a way to go. Uh, and then rank voting is is your initiative number two. And that plays in here, right? Right. So rank voting is uh, something that has been uh, around for a long time in other um Areas, for example, if you're, uh, you know, uh, uh, a member voting for the uh, Academy Awards, you know, you vote for your second choice, you vote for your first choice and second choice and third choice. And what happens if no movie or no candidate uh, receives a majority, then automatically the lowest ranking uh, choice gets eliminated and you reallocate the votes to your second choice. So. Um, what happens now if you vote for, uh, uh, you know, a third party can candidate, uh, um, you are, uh, that's not going to win, um, you know, you vote your conscience, you are essentially splitting the vote and playing the role of a spoiler. But with rank voting, you can vote for whoever you want. And if they don't win, then your then your vote goes to the second person. So what this is, this is like a, not a new thing. So uh, uh, um, Minneapolis, Portland, uh, uh, various cities in the Bay Area, they've been doing this for years. And what they found happens is if you're a candidate, in fact, I was just uh, watching a video from the former mayor of Minneapolis, and she talked about how it changed her campaigning. Sure, you go off after your, your partisan narrow interest, but you have to appeal beyond your base. You have to be the second choice of a number of people. And that forces you to broaden your appeal and it forces you from moving from negative, you know, we're the least bad candidate to actually positive solution. So, you know, it's been around for a, a while and it actually, uh, you know, works toward uh, uh, moving toward a, a broader based, um, more centrist solutions. Right on. All right, cool. So those two work together a lot. And you're saying that, um, um, Again, there are on the ground examples of this happening and working. Yes. Yes. 
Okay, so now let's so, go. To so, but it, it's working its way up. So, for example, uh, the people that are working on a fair vote, which is the ranked choice thing, their goal is to have um, 20 elections for governor in the 2020 election be uh, be ranked choice voting. So this is this is an example of an initiative that's working its way up from uh, municipalities and state legislature, to, you know, toward uh, toward a national uh, movement. All right. Well, cool. Then let's look at the next thing, which is, um, hang on, um, redistricting or gerrymandering. So this has been getting a lot of press uh, recently, and uh, this is typical. You'll, you'll meet people that have kind of read about gerrymandering and uh, think it's the you know sole solution. And it's kind of like the money out of politics people. Yes, it's an important plank, but it's not the whole thing. So gerrymandering is essentially, so there's six uh, cases now working their way through the upper level of the courts. Three are uh, uh, lawsuits that uh, uh, claim that uh, Republicans gerrymandered the districts unfairly, and three uh, claim that Democrats did. So this is not a uh, partisan issue. Uh, it happens to be a lot more Republicans now because they were more in control in 2020 when the last time the so anyway, uh, so it's very uh, interesting. You can look, let's say, for a state legislator, legislative election, the percents of votes, let's say in a given state, uh, Republicans got uh, 48% of the votes, but 68% of the legislative seats. So that's an example you know, of the bias. And uh, so uh, anyway, there's lots of things around that. But um, uh, that is an important leg of the strategy. And um, the uh, organization number three that is particularly focused on that is the Campaign Legal Center, uh, which uh, you know, funds uh, not only redistricting, but you know, enforcing election laws and everything else. So those three things work in, in complementary ways. You know? And I must say that if you look at a test case in California, in 2010 that went to uh, nonpartisan redistricting. It, it um, mandated an independent commission to redraw the districts and it went to open primaries. There's been dramatic results in the change in the way California is governed. You can look at uh, first the approval rating of the California legislature has zoomed from like 14% to 60%. Um, you see um, incumbents being thrown out of office. You see um, incumbents uh, voting across party lines to uh, make a centrist proposals like cap and trade legislation. You know, you basically, you basically you see uh, new people entering the market, uh, candidates entering the market, and you see higher participation rates in primary elections. So, you know, that was a little laboratory that started shifting things about six years ago, and we're already starting to see the results. Yeah, I would say California is a very powerful test case. Yeah. A huge state. And, and real results from doing these, what, all three of these things? Uh, um, it, uh, not rank voting. Uh, yeah, I mean, one, one, one and three. For the state legislature, but there's like rank voting uh, in the Bay Area, and that's mm -hmm. had dramatic results, but not yet for the state legislature. Yeah, cool. Well, that shows just the you know uh, benefit of just doing open primaries and redistricting. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. redistricting alone is where you, you know, what do they say that the uh, candidates pick their voters currently rather than the voters picking their candidates? Yeah. yeah. So, There's right. another little twist on rank voting that's um, kind of often gets lost, but is a real sleeper, which is uh, bypassing the electoral college. So part of the initiatives is, is are also to go to direct voting where uh, 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 the, uh, it's not the electoral college, but it's the uh, popular vote in each study state rolled up to the national. And so this is actually passed at the state level in, um, in states that represent about half of the electoral college, about 135 votes. And it's pending in the other 135. So when it reaches 270, that's the end of the electoral college. So, and it's, and it's direct voting, you know? So if you're, you know, in California, looking at those Ohio voters, you know, it's, uh, it would make a big difference. So, so that's part of the more open voting uh, change. Right on. Okay, so then your fourth initiative is presidential debate access, correct? Right. So this is a very, very specific thing, uh, but it's a really important acupuncture point. So um, the current, uh, so basically you cannot be elected president. It's fair to say you cannot be elected president unless you're in the debates. And the current uh, debate rules are set by a private organization uh, established by the Federal Election Committee, and, it's, and it consists of three Republicans and three Democrats. And, the, uh, and this is an example where they're not competing, but they're colluding in technically the duopoly to keep out competition. So the current rule is seven weeks before the election, you have to have a 15% polling to get in. Well, that is impossible. To get a 15% polling, you have to have 60 to 80% name recognition, which is hundreds of millions of dollars, which is why neither Bernie nor Trump you know, tried to run as an independent. The last president, the last person, non-party person that was in a, a debate was Ross Perot 30 years ago, and he polled at 9%. So it's just, it's essentially excludes anyone from the presidential debate. So the, the lawsuit, there's this uh, billionaire, uh, Ackerman, uh, who is suing the FEC to change the, the rules, um, uh, is he's proposing that in addition to the 15% hurdle, that in April, six months before the election, that a candidate who's gotten the most signatures on ballot access uh, in the state uh, gets to be in the primaries. In other words, it's a direct measure of voter will. And if there's more than one, the one that who has the most. So what would happen then if, uh, you know, Jill Stein uh, got enough, uh, um, was on enough ballots six months before, she would be the design designated third candidate. She would get the media attention and, you know, the boner, the boner, the uh, voter donor base, et cetera, to make her a viable third candidate. So the two parties know that. So, you know, they've set the rules to make it impossible for a third party to come in. <clears throat> you almost wish they had been more successful in keeping Donald Trump out, who they didn't really want to anyway. But yeah. I, yeah. I get your bigger point. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, so we have open primaries, number one, rank voting, number two, redistricting or the gerrymandering, number three, presidential debate access, number four, and then that brings us to number five, which is um, represent us or the anti-corruption initiative. 
Correct. So the ones we've covered essentially uh, affect the amount of competition and voters that matter, right? So it opens up competition and it has a broader group of voters uh, that matter rather than the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, 20% partisan activists. So those, those four initiatives, open primaries, rank voting, redistricting, you know, open up competition, voters that matter. The two other sides of the box are the role of money and barriers to participation. So uh, the role of money. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a fantasy that uh, money can be taken out of politics. You know, the ROI on it is just too darn hard. So healthcare, for example, in the 2016 election, um, invested about 1.3 billion dollars. Uh, around uh, 900 million of that was lobbying and uh, 400 million of that uh, was campaign contributions. And the, the ROI on that is just too high. So you can't get money out of politics, okay? But what you can do is limit the uh, uh, disproportionate role. So it was very interesting, uh, even in the Citizens United uh, decision, which opened up the role of the, the uh, way for super PACs, the Supreme Court assumed and ruled that there would be uh, 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 transparency. So it thought that the counterweight to uh, unlimited money was transparency. So they have never uh, blocked anything with transparency. So they, the lack of transparency in the system is not a legal thing, but it's part of the rules that have been set up. So, uh, so the last two initiatives, we can broadly think of them as anti-corruption initiatives, uh, one is working at the grassroots level and one is working inside the beltway. So at the grassroots level, we have an organization called Represent Us. It's got um, activists in all 50 states. You know, you can uh, go to my site and then go to their site or go, you know, you can see if there's a chapter in your area and what they're doing. And what they're um, um, promoting is called an anti-corruption uh, act. And it, it covers uh, um, lobbyist bundling. Uh, you know, if you're gonna be a lobbyist, you can't also uh, be a campaign contributor. Uh, uh, more access on revolving doors, uh, more uh, transparency, more um, funding of the, exist, of the existing uh, uh, election rules. Uh, and, you know, it also supports uh, open primaries, rank voting, redistricting, so it's, a, it's kind of an omnibus thing. And to show you the momentum that's happening, uh, last month, uh, Chicago, Cook County, passed the Anti-Corruption Act. You know, so one of the, historically, one of the most corrupt political systems in the country has passed this. So you kind of see- The, post, this, the poster hmm? city for corruption. The poster city for corruption. So you see its way, you know, working through you know, municipality by municipality, state by state. So that's what Represent Us is doing. And uh, I sent you the video from Jennifer Lawrence today. She's promoting it. You can win a, a, a dinner with Jennifer Lawrence in Napa Valley, you know, if you participate. So, so if you like Jennifer Lawrence, you can, you know, uh, participate in that. So, so that's the grassroots level. You know, that really is trench warfare, 50 states, you know, doing it. And then uh, the complementary initiative is, is something called Issue One, which is um, about 300 former governors, state legislatures, um, uh, people in elected office that have seen the distortions created by the system. And they're essentially 
lobbying and uh, uh, for legislations and changes, you know, within the current system, within the Beltway. So they're complementary. One is grassroots and one is working directly at the federal level. So that's, that's the overview of the six. And um, if you were to say why those six, here's the criteria. I mean, the six were the ones highlighted by uh, the Harvard study, but uh, the criteria are explicit and they may change over time. The first criteria is that they are uh, initiatives that are impactful, but doable. So as we said yesterday, we might uh, ideally like a constitutional referendum to take money out of politics, but that's a dream. I mean, that's a 20 year process if, you know, so that's high impact, but not achievable. On the other hand, there's a lot of things that sound good, like uh, term limits that don't actually do that much because they don't change the structure of the behavior for whoever's in office. So the first criteria is that sweet spot between things that have impact and are doable. The second criteria for me are the things that are complementary. You know, so you can see in this quick run through of the six, these are all specialized things that work in complementary ways. And the way they work are generally through ballot initiatives, half our states have ballot initiatives, uh, legal challenges, and a direct uh, lobbying for uh, of uh, incumbents. And the third criteria, this is kind of insider baseball, uh, which is, um, uh, is the organization actually getting results? Do they have momentum? Do they have leadership? You know, et cetera. So, you know, is it complementary? Is it getting results? And is it really working, uh, you know, on initiative? Yeah, no, that's why I love it. It's so pragmatic. Yeah, it's very pragmatic. And, you know, and again, I think really well chosen uh, leverage points into the system that are doable and really could make a difference. It can make a difference. Yeah. So, so, so that's what changetherules.org is basically a consolidator for these. You could donate directly to these organizations or donate to change the rules and Tom will manage that money, manage the portfolio. And in addition to that, uh, there's also some uh, sort of training or, or what are you doing, Tom? That uh, Oh, yeah. Great. I'm glad you raised that. Yeah. It helps me be a better activist. Yeah. So one way you can make a difference is to contribute money. And for many people, busy lives, you know, they're just not going to be policy wonks or get into it. They just, you know. And on the money side, my pitch is, Sure, put two thirds of your effort and money against your favorite candidate, better candidates help, your favorite issue, but put one third of your money against structural change. Okay, so that's that. So that's on the money side. Some people uh, don't have uh, much money, but they wanna be activists. So uh, what I'm hoping is with uh, change the rules, they can look at this and uh, you know that quick flyby, they could say, you know, wow, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, uh, contributing to an anti-corruption initiative, you know, what does Represent Us doing? You know, so they just join Represent Us, okay? For the people that want to um, place their efforts strategically, what I'm beta testing now, it's not on the site, is a monthly activist program, MEP if you want, where each month I send you three tailored actions that you can take that would have the biggest impact, including considering uh, where you live. 
So you tell me on the California residents or Colorado residents. So, you know, I know if there's a middle of a big ballot initiative going on in Colorado, you know, or there may be something national that's reaching a tipping point. So it's like, you don't have to get involved and join the organizations and be inundated by, you know, 50 newsletters each month. Here's three actions you can take, it, it, uh, non-financial actions. So I'm, I'm piloting that. I've, at this point, um, you know, I have a working relationship with the head of all six of these organizations plus others. And so, you know, I'm, I'm working with them on how we can, uh, you know, create a consolidated data f- f- uh, field that I can uh, simplify for a kind of simplified activist actions. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, Tom, you know, I, I, I get all kinds of offers. And um, in terms of just ease for me uh, and uh, the, sort of the intelligence and um, the pragmatic, this really can make a difference kind of feel. And then also getting anything from uh you know, what's going on locally or where I might actually make a non-financial impact. That's a pretty good deal. You yeah. know, you're, make, you're making it easy. And I like that. Well, I'm a consumer marketing guy and uh, you, in most product categories, convenience and control are two primary benefits. So I'm giving you convenience and control. Well, by God, you are. So <laughs> thank you for that, Tom. I appreciate it. And, and the, the site is now newly launched. It is changetherules.org. Go take a look. Uh, you can, you know, sign up and, and and I'm sure Tom will send you letters for the rest of your life. Uh, and <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Take a look and uh, sign up and you'll be updated. Uh, I don't have enough energy to send you letters every week, but <laughs> yeah. some cool. unspecified period, uh, you'll, you will get uh, an update. Yeah, well, very good. Well, and thank you, Tom, for all your years spent tilling the integral field in business consulting. We appreciate that too. And any place that if people are interested in your other work or any place they might want to take a look? Uh, If they go to the website, they can contact me. There's also uh, at the bottom a thing on who is Tom Curran. It's, you know, got my bio on the strategy side and so forth. Great. Well, again, you know, a, a, a really intelligent approach to the third person integration of this polarity that's going on in our country, where we're actually working on the institutions, the players, the systems, the rules. Yeah. And that's why we have Tom Curran on today and his new organization, Change the Rules. Can I make one final point? Yes. It's very important that this be uh, nonpartisan because um, uh, this applies to both. I mean, it is true that the Republican Party has more visible uh, excesses, but it's also true that it's something true of Democrats. So uh, it applies to uh, both parties and uh, I'm strictly uh, non-partisan. Yeah, Yeah. and and I actually think that's one of your strengths for obvious reasons, because you Mm -hmm. don't want to get pulled to either side of the polarity. But also there seems to be a sort of a consensus even among the, the ideologues that these parties are you know, just sucking on the teat of the country and that there's a a political industrial complex that, as you put it, is doing very well. You know, they're delivering for their customers. They're, nobody ever fires them. They, you know, the status quo is, is going strong. 
And this is a way of really, uh, you know, attacking that intelligently in a, in a really effective and frontal way. So we had that statistic that was on the graphic. It wasn't in the narration. So 17% approval rate, 95% reelection rate in Congress. Where yeah. else would you have a product category that has 17% approval and then 95% repurchase? The only way you get that is in a closed system. Yeah, a rigged system. Trump was right. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Tom Curran. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And check back in the next uh, episode of The Daily Evolver. Bye, folks.